This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Um, my name is John Sharbach. For those of you who haven't, I haven't got a chance to meet yet. Um, I fill in for Corey and Mike occasionally uh, when circumstances uh, permit. And I'm a member at Providence Church, which is a church here in Austin, downtown near the university. Um, and it's, it's a real, it's a real pleasure to get to do this um, occasionally. And so, if I haven't met you, I, you know, I'd love the chance to to meet you uh, after the service. Um, we have a we have a very hard text today. And so what I want to do before we even get started is just sort of contextualize it a little bit. Um, there's this word from, from Malachi chapter 2, uh, verse 16, where God says, I hate divorce. And um, you know, divorce is sort of a, a soul-crushing, society-destabilizing, family-upending event. It's very traumatizing, potentially and potentially more traumatizing than even the, the death of your spouse. Um, you know, divorce harms the divorcer. Uh, it's a self-destructive act against God. We reap what we sow. Um, that, that Satan shows us the bait. Hey, you'll be free. You'll be happy. You can go find someone else. And then he hides the hook of economic, emotional, spiritual, and social harm. Um, divorce harms the divorcee. Uh, it, all the things that just happened but also the added feelings of shame and guilt. Like, am I not good enough? Am I not, you know, what's, what's wrong with me? Um, divorce harms the family. It causes lasting psychological impacts um, on family dynamics. It harms the community. It sort of starts to chip away at that t- taboo that says don't get divorced. Every time someone gets divorced, it chips away at that societal taboo just a little more until eventually the, the dam breaks. And, and divorce harms the gospel. It obscures the faithfulness of God towards his people. And, and so... Given all those things, if God loves people, therefore it makes perfect sense that God would hate divorce. But this is also a very hard passage because it touches almost every one of our lives in very personal and very tangible ways. Um, some of us have been victimized by divorce, either directly or indirectly through our parents, and this passage kind of offers us the hope of consolation that God sees, that God understands, and that God cares. Um, some of us have victimized others through divorce, and so this passage offers sort of a humbling rebuke and an invitation to accept God and Christ and his grace. Um, and some of us are maybe considering divorce, and, and this passage offers us a very stern warning and an invitation to uh, repent. And so whatever our situation is, my hope is that we would feel the presence of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit as we approach this text, and we would approach it with humility and honesty and let God say what he's going to say to us, but also let, let God comfort us in, in this passage. And so bef- with all that said, let me, let me pray and then we can uh, read the passage. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for today and for the chance to study your word and uh, to expound it. We hope that you would superintend this time through your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth and you would soften our hearts to accept it and that you would enlighten the eyes of our, of our understanding uh, to see the glory of Christ in this passage and that you would help us to respond to it um, in faith in ways that drive us closer to you and, and make us more zealous for good works. Let me pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Um, passage today is Mark 10, uh, starting in verse 1. If, if, if you have one of the uh, little ESVs in the back, it's on page 943. Mark chapter 10 starting in verse 1. 
And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So sort of like the Pharisees in this passage, I think we tend to approach divorce in sort of a rules-based way. We kind of know like, what's the rules? When can we do it? When can we not do it? You know, uh, what's the theology of it? And then once we've got them down, we do one of two things. Either A, we, we discard the rules entirely. We're like, well, you know, if divorce is for all. If you want a divorce, then you aren't happy and things aren't going well, you know, just get a divorce, and as long as your friends support you and your family supports you, kind of who cares what your church or what God says? And, and there's another way we do it, which is we twist them, we twist those rules into legalism, and it's basically divorce is for none. Uh, you know, no matter what the circumstances, no matter how hard things are, no matter what your spouse has done, uh, it really doesn't matter at all. All that matters is upholding the picture of, of the gospel that we see in marriage, and, you know, we gotta have a rule and we gotta consistently apply it to anyone. And to everyone, and in both cases, we sort of we twist. I think what our Savior says to clear the guilty and to punish the innocent. And so, our Savior in this passage is offering us an alternative approach. His approach is based on the character of God and the nature and the meaning of marriage. And so, it stems from this one simple truth that marriage is a God-ordained union. What God has joined together. And this is the one unifying idea, I think, that ties together not, all the different th- not only just those different threads in this passage, but the different threads throughout all the scriptures about everything that God says about divorce. That marriage is a God-ordained union. And so because marriage is a God-ordained union, number one, we cannot lawfully terminate it. Because marriage is a God-ordained union, number two, it does not oppress the innocent. And number three, because marriage is a God-ordained union, God faithfully upholds his own. That marriage is a God-ordained union. We cannot lawfully terminate it. It does not oppress the innocent, and God faithfully upholds his own. So, we cannot lawfully terminate it. Um, let's just take a look at v- verse 1 real quick, just so we can get con- context and situated. Uh, he, he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds were gathering to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So he's heading south uh, towards Jerusalem, and he's getting accosted by all these people that are coming up to him, and he's proclaiming the good news, and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God, and it's like a very good thing. And then verse two happens, the Pharisees came up to him, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so the, this is not a good faith question, this is a, a, a test. Now that word can be used positively. It is uh, very rarely used positively, almost always used negatively. Uh, elsewhere, they're like testing him to find a reason to accuse him. Basically, the Pharisees are trying to start trouble with Jesus. And 
that the content of the test is one of biblical interpretation. So it's like a Bible trivia question. And uh, we don't need to turn there, but the, the, the question they're asking relates to how you interpret Deuteronomy 24, which is the passage where Moses uh, regulates divorce and kind of turns around this idea of you know, what constitutes indecency that would allow for a divorce? And is it condoning divorce? Is it regulating divorce? But, but, but the, the, the high-level idea is that in, in Jesus' time, there are two schools of thought. School of thought number one says that you can only get divorced for infidelity. Your spouse commits infidelity, and, 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 and you can get divorced. And the other school of thought says you can get divorced for really any reason at all. You know, and the classic example from the, from the literature is, you know, if your wife burns the toast or, you know, whatever, you can divorce her. And so it's like this very liberal understanding of divorce, very unrestrictive understanding and a very restrictive understanding. And they're trying to get them to pick. Like, hey, which one of these are, are you doing? And they're kind of putting them on the horns of a dilemma uh, because no matter what he picks, he's going to annoy somebody. And so see what Jesus does in verse three. He answered them, what did Moses command you? So in very Jesus-like fashion, he turns the question back on them, kind of reversing the trap, and then they give this very ham-fisted answer, like very clumsy and theologically unastute. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And so, yeah, they say basically divorce is allowed, and they don't really, you know, get into it. And Jesus sort of rebukes them very harshly Uh, in response, in verse 5, he says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Like, yes, you have correctly parroted the words that Moses has said, but only some of them. Um, They're only looking at this passage, this one little passage in Deuteronomy 24, and they're not looking at what all of of what Moses uh, has said. And so he says in verse uh, uh, 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, uh, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, therefore, let not man separate. So they're saying, he's basically saying, like, you're, you're kind of like proof texting off this one passage of Deuteronomy 24, and you're not considering the larger biblical context of what God says about Marriage. You're, you're missing the point that Moses, yes, Moses permits divorce in some circumstance. Moses regulates divorce in all circumstances. And Moses condones divorce in no circumstances. Um, and well, well, why not? Why doesn't, you know, like, well, he draws out two reasons. So the first reason uh, is vertical, that divorce is a sin against God. And that's in verses 6 through 9, which we just read, that what God has joined together, let not man separate. That they're so fixated on the destruction of marriage, and when it's okay to get out of a marriage, that they're completely overlooking the reality of marriage and the creation of marriage. That marriage is, yes, it's a physical union between uh, two persons, that the, the two should become one flesh into one communal entity. But more than that, marriage is also a spiritual union uh, given by God as a good gift for his, the good of his people. That, you know, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And, and sort of as, and then we, you know, as Christ and the church are spiritually connected by the mysterious work of God in our, in our mysterious union with God, so also a husband and a wife are spiritually connected uh, in some, by the mysterious workings of God. And, and the, the illustration is sort of like God is, a, is, a, is, is the worker, he's like a, 
a, a master artisan, and he's unifying these two people together. And you know, you have the warp and the weft, which are the you know the strings of the of the tapestry or the fabric, and he's weaving them together into the, this beautiful fabric. That providentially, it's all working together through weaving these two lives together into a beautiful tapestry, and. The tapestry, it turns out, shows this transcendent picture of God's love and God's faithfulness and God's mercy and his grace towards his people in the church. Um, that, and, and, and basically saying, you know, we can't, maybe we can't see it in the moment, maybe sometimes it's hard and, and, and difficult, but when we take a step back and we look at it, we see like, oh, this picture that says, as, the, as, as you are faithful to your spouse, as you are forgiving to your spouse, as you are merciful to your spouse, so also... I, God, am faithful, merciful, loving, just to my people, the church. And it, 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 divorce, that's, that's the image, and then divorce is like this big bucket of paint. We're like, ah, you know what? Okay, great tapestry, God, but I don't, you know, I got, I got my own things I need to draw, so we draw a big bucket of white paint on the tapestry, like just right over it, because we like, you know, I got my own tawdry scribblings I need to do. I need to make some doodles, like I'm gonna draw some stuff over here. I got my own picture I wanna paint, and then, you know, I, you know, okay, you're got the tapestry, but like, I got crayons. Um, and so we, we th- this is what the conversation is sort of like. It's like this stupid theological nitpicking about when and when, when we can and when we can't into marriage, and it sort of ignores the insult of like what, what the whole thing is. Like, uh, what it is is like you've got a master artisan over here, and this you know, and we come along and we destroy this artwork, and that's a, you know it's a huge sin against God. We're comp- you know when can I get, when can I destroy God's masterpiece? It's like well hold on man, take off your shoes for a second here. You're treading on holy ground. You know this is not uh, you're not like this is not like a theological nitpick about well what does it mean when he says you can't like a, you can't boil a kid with its with its mother's milk like does that all dairy and meat like this is this is real substantive this is real substantive theology it's something very magnificent and very precious that god has created and therefore what god has joined together let not man separate that's reason number 1 that there's this horizontal sin against god yeah i don't like your tapestry and then there's a horizontal there's sorry it's a vertical and then there's a horizontal sin that divorce is a sin against the spouse and we see this in verses uh, 10 11 and 12 in, t- in verse 10 in, in the house the disciples asked him about this matter and he said to them whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her and if she divorces her husband and marries another she commits adultery so basically, so, so the world, so this is, you know, the world will tell us that like, well, divorce is not as big of a deal. Like, you know, roughly half of all American marriages end in divorce. Sometimes people fall out of love. No harm, no foul. But I think even even in the world, everyone kind of still recognizes that um, adultery is is hurtful and it's shameful and it's 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 sinful. And this is what Jesus compared this to. He says, okay, you know, if 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 a husband divorces his wife and marries another, that's like adultery. And if a wife divorces her husband and marries another, that's like adultery. But in some sense, that divorce is actually worse than adultery. In the same way that, like, okay, so I'm a, I'm a lawyer, and there's this concept, you know, in, in old common law about, uh, you know, murder with malice aforethought, right? Malice aforethought, which is a great phrase. And it just means, like, if you've thought about it ahead of time and you really planned it out and you murder someone, that's much, much worse than if in the heat of the moment you fly off the handle and you, and you, and you shoot someone. Right, um, that it's a, the fact that you put thought into it, you planned it, that it's deliberate, actually makes the crime worse, not better. And you know, so divorce is kind of like premeditated adultery. 
it makes it more culpable, not less culpable. Like, hey, honey, um, can I go commit adultery? Like, no, you can't. Like, okay, well, I hear what you're saying, and I'm going to give it some very careful thought, and I'm going to involve some lawyers, and we're going to spend about fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, and then I'm going to go commit adultery. Doesn't that make it better? Like, no, actually, that makes it much worse. Because um, now you're devoting time and energy and resources to it. That divorce is, uh, because divorce is sort of like a premeditated adultery, it makes it worse, not better. But more than that, divorce forces the other spouse into a type of a sin pattern as well. Like this is what Matthew, what he says in Matthew uh, 5, like if a husband divorces his wife, um, except for ground of sexual immorality, he makes her commit adultery. Like somehow he is culpable for her sin. That we're forcing this other party into a, a time of sin. And we'll pick up on that thread in a second. But um, the illustration, kind of get back to the illustration, divorce is like, we have this tapestry and it's weaving together the warp, which I think, more, you know, one of the strings, one of the, some of the threads go this way, some of the threads go that way, they're called warp and weft, and um, they're woven together, and, and there's, but the problem is, once they're woven together, you know, I'm not a tapestry guy, so maybe this is wrong, but there's not like a clean way to separate them. You know, you can get them apart, but it's not going to, you're going to do some violence to those, to those threads. Um, it's, 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 it's not like this is going to be a clean, a clean break. Um, that, that, and, and, and so like, there's no, there's really no such thing as no fault divorce. And so no fault divorce is like this legal concept where it's like, well, well, we have irreconcilable differences. No one's really at fault. No one really did anything wrong. It's just kind of, we fell out of love and we dissolved the marriage. Um, and it doesn't require a showing of wrongdoing by either party. And the problem with that, number one, is that um, breakups are almost never mutual. They're always a little asymmetrical. You know, like we could, you might say afterwards, like, oh, yeah, whatever. Um, but like a lot, of that's not, a lot of that's just to save face, at least in my experience. Um, it, someone's always the party that's being broken it off with. Someone's always being harmed by that. But number two, um, that even if they are mutual, even if the breakup is mutual, that doesn't deprive Christ the argument of its force. Um, if two people mutually agree to get divorced, then they are mutually agreeing to commit adultery. It's not neither party is in the wrong, it's that both parties are in the wrong, according to this logic. And so the short answer here is that it is not lawful. So they ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus says, no, it's not lawful for a man to divorce his wife that human beings cannot lawfully destroy this tapestry that God has created, both because it is a sin against God and because it's a sin against one another. That marriage is a God-ordained union, and therefore we cannot lawfully terminate it. Uh, so so that's, that's the first kind of truth of this text. And so what do, we, what do we do with that truth? Well, there's an obvious application, which is that we don't rush, rashly rush out of a God-ordained union. Um, you know, if we, we uh, like, if we're thinking about divorce and we, and we don't have biblical grounds for doing so, and we'll get that in a second, we should stop thinking about that. We should repent. We should go seek uh, counseling um, with, with our pastor. And maybe, you know, maybe, maybe we're already there. Maybe we've already rushed out of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a marriage without sufficient grounds. And maybe we're hearing this for the first time. We're thinking, ooh, this is maybe a little convicting. The Holy Spirit's pressing in on us. And maybe we want to repent and seek reconciliation. Um, and if that's, if that's you, then great. You know, talk to, uh, you know, set up a meeting with, with Corey or Mike or one of the elders here to talk it through. You know, that's something that requires, I, I can't, I'm not going to give you like a whole bunch of different case law here. It's just like, you know, that's, that's something that requires guidance and thought and care about how you approach it. It's a hard situation that requires wisdom. Or maybe we're just in a marriage and, and, 
and you know, we're not valuing it highly enough. We're not treating our marriage with the respect that it deserves. This is a God-ordained union. It's the tapestry that God's weaving, and I'm kind of treating it lightly. You know, I'm not committing any like, you know, grievous sins that are grounds for divorce. I'm just not being a very good husband or a very good wife. Well, you know, we should, we should turn from that and um, take it seriously. Like, marriage is serious, marriage is serious business. And because, it is, because it's God's business and we're about God's business and so we should pursue it with the same zeal that we pursue God in every, every other area of life. Um, but then there's a less obvious application and I think, you know, this is probably uh, you know, just glancing around the room maybe, maybe more on point um, for a lot of you, it's that we shouldn't rashly rush into a God-ordained union. That marriage is a one-way transaction and there's no take-backs so we should be very careful about what we're doing. Um, and, and so, you know, we got to ask ourselves some questions. And question number one, and the big question, I think, is are we equally yoked? This is a concept out of First Corinthians chapter, or Second Corinthians chapter 6. Um, it basically means, like, are you evenly paired? Not, are you both professing Christians? Like, that's a prerequisite, obviously, um, according to the scriptures. But, like, are you, are you both walking with the Lord? Are you both in community? Are you both theologically aligned? Are you both going to church? Are you both pursuing the Lord with the same degree of zeal and vigor? You know, it's not like, oh, but he says he's a Christian. You know, he hasn't gone to church in a while, but he says he's a Christian. Like, you know, sometimes people lie to themselves. And sometimes people lie to one another. And sometimes people aren't lying at all. But they're, they're just not pursuing the Christian life with the same vigor that they, that they, they should. And, and in all these cases, we should be, we should be, wise as serpents, but innocent as doves in terms of, of how we, we, we approach marriage. Like, what does your family think? That's a good question to ask. What do your friends think? What does your church think? Do you know who you're marrying? Uh, I, I would strongly encourage everyone here, this is a ministry that we, we do at Providence, to pursue uh, premarital counseling, or even better, pre-engagement counseling. Um, you know, it's not, not just like a one or two session thing. We're like, okay, well, you're, you're both Christians. You both know the gospel. Like, have at it. Um, but, but like, you know, real in, really invest some time. And the analogy here is like, this is something I found out this week. Um, my wife is an ar- architect. And, you know, we're talking about like the different parts of the project. And the most expensive part of, of most projects, um, I'm missing some details here, is the site work and the foundation. Like getting everything level and ready and putting the foundation in place. That, and, and if we're building on a good foundation, everything else in the project is going to work out much better. And if we're not building on a good foundation, we haven't taken the time to do the site work, we haven't taken the time to prep the foundation, best case scenario is we go in a few years later and we have to rework the foundation, which is a very expensive process once there's the house on top of it. And the worst case scenario is the house collapses. And, you know, look, if you're in one of these situations, like, God will and can redeem these situations for his glory and for your good. But if you're not yet there, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Like, do the site work that is necessary going into marriage. Okay? So that's, that's the main principle of this text, that what God has joined together, let not man separate. This is a very, this is an important, you know, marriage is important. Um, and it's this very strict rule, and it's this very hard truth, and it's one that caused the disciples in the parallel passage to remark, hey, if this, is, if this is what it's like, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus is like, yeah, basically. You're like, ooh, okay. You know, this is a hard truth. And everyone today probably sees it. And even back then, people saw it. And if you're like me, your, your mind is now being like, okay, well, what about, like, what about this? What about, 
What about that? Like, what about abuse? What about adultery? Like, what about, and these are good questions to ask. These are not bad questions. And in fact, a lot of the problem that we have in this text is that the Pharisees are not asking these questions. The Pharisees are at, like, looking at just this one text in isolation of the whole counsel of God. And the, the, what Jesus is trying to do is pull them out and say, like, hey, let's, let's, let's consider everything God has to say about this. So we don't just theologize out of this one little passage and develop like a very myopic, unbalanced view of things. And so that's kind of where we're going to go next. We're going to take a, take a step back, loose, less directly connected to the passage, and see the next idea, which is that because marriage is a God-ordained union, it does not oppress the innocent. That in, so in a perfect world, no marriage would ever end. Because number one, there'd be no sin, and number two, we would be immortal. Uh, you know, our, our physical bodies. But we don't live in a perfect world, so every marriage does end, either through divorce or through death. And okay, so you're like, okay, but hold on a second. You just said there's no, you know, you can't, you can't get divorced. Well, no. I mean, you can get divorced, but there's no lawful divorce. If you, if you get divorced, someone's at fault. Someone has always sinned. And so marriages can be sinfully dissolved, in one of two ways. They can be sinfully dissolved, and I'm gonna use some words here that are not in the Bible, but are helpful, I think. Either de jure, which means by law or formally, or de facto, which means uh, by fact, or in fact, and informally. And so these are, I I think, the, it's helpful to think about this. Like in Deuteronomy 24, we get like, okay, you write a certificate of divorce, you sign it, like you have the, you know, whatever. Um, that would be de jure divorce. Like you're formalizing your divorce. And then in Matthew 5 or 1 Corinthians 7, we have more of the de facto divorce. Like your husband has left and he's not coming back. Okay, well, in that case, you know, she's, she's free is what Paul says. And Okay, so where am I getting this? Does this have any connection to the passage at all? Well, I think the answer is yes, um, which is why I'm saying it. Versus, so this word, um, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife in verse two? And then the word divorce or send her away in verse four? Verse 11 and verse 12, divorce, divorce. Those are all the same word. And they literally mean to, and they literally mean to send someone away. Um, it's it's uh, like, it's, you're no longer living together as husband and wife. And I think that's a really good question to ask. Like, can we live together? Are we living together as husband and wife? If the answer is yes, uh, then that's, that's good. And if the answer is no, that's, that's very bad. Um, and there are types of sin, well, like if, 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 if you cannot live together as husband and wife because of one party's sin, that's the kind of sin I think that Paul talks about as informally or de facto dissolving a marriage. Um, and so there's three types of sin that Paul and Jesus identify that, that meet these criteria. Number one is adultery, that your spouse has desecrated your marriage through sexual immorality. And so you can write these down. We're not going to turn there now. But Matthew 5, verse 32, Matthew 19, verse 9 are two uh, good texts to explore that idea from. Number two is abandonment, that your spouse has, uh, refuses to live with you. And that includes, obviously, like, they've sued for divorce and you're divorced, but also just, they're gone. Um, abandonment. And the proof text for that is 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. if you want to look at that. And then the third is abuse. And I think this gets to the idea of you cannot safely live with your spouse. And you say, okay, well, where do we see that in the Bible? That's harder exegesis, but it's also 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. And if you want to work through the exegesis uh, on that, we're not going to do that today. Uh, I'm sure Corey can help you with that. 
Okay, so those are the three, the three cases. But the basic idea is in cases such as these, that Paul is listing off cases where you cannot live together as husband and wife, and he says, like, in cases such as these, like, okay, you can formalize it. So it's as different than being in an unhappy marriage. It's as different than you bicker all the time. This is different than, you know, uh, your husband's not a very good husband. Um, if, if that were the case, we would be in trouble. But uh, if, if the, this, is, this is a higher bar than that. But it's saying, basically, if you do one of these three things, then you've already done what God has prohibited us from doing in this passage. You have separated what God has joined together. And if we create this sort of de facto condition of divorce, then our spouses are well within their rights to formalize it. And to formalize the separation through uh, de jure, or formal divorce. And so it's not that the innocent spouse is terminating the marriage, it's that the innocent spouse is, the, the guilty spouse terminated the marriage, the innocent spouse is formalizing what the, what the guilty spouse has done, okay? So this is like, okay, well, that's nice, that's a helpful framework maybe, but uh, do, we, do we really see this in this passage? Like, well, verse nine, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And it's important because I think a lot of times when people paraphrase this, it says what God has joined together, man cannot separate. And it does not say that. It says what God has joined together, let not man separate. So in the same way that God forbids murder, but we can still murder, so God forbids divorce, but we can still divorce. That we should not do this thing, but that does not mean that we cannot do this thing. And so through their sin, one party can create the conditions for divorce. The other is verse five, and I think this is a stronger argument. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Um, Jesus does not correct their understanding of what Moses allowed them to do. And uh, why? Because of the hardness of heart. Um, that in a perfect world, in, in Eden, before the fall, there would be no divorce, but on this side of the fall, in the imperfect world, we are, we are hardened and sinful in our hearts. And so, yes, we're not under the law anymore. We're not under the Mosaic law, but we are still under the giver of the law, the lawgiver, God. And therefore, the same lawgiver that made accommodation for the hardness of heart uh, in, 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 in the Torah in his, in, shows that same mercy in permitting divorce in the new covenant to address sin. And, and why is that? Well, because we serve a merciful, a merciful God. That he's created this God-ordained union, and because he is good, and it's a good gift, uh, it's not an unholy instrument of oppression that we can wield against an innocent spouse. And so Paul kind of described this condition of the innocent party being forced to stay in this marriage in 1 Corinthians 7 as, as slavery or a bondage. Um, it's, not a, it's not an idea. And he says, you know, they're not, they're not enslaved in this case. They're free. And, and so this kind of, and I think there's also this argument from God's character, which is, and this is a little more tenuous, but I think uh, gets to it, which is that for most of human history, divorce, divorces fell very disproportionately on the, on the, the, the women. Um, and it's much harsher for them. And, and being unjustly divorced would be sort of like being widowed or being, and your children being orphaned, except there's very little likelihood of remarriage because there's this, um, stigma associated with it. And you say, okay, well, hold on, you can't use reason or whatever to countermand the word of God. Like, no, we're not, we're not doing that. We're not, we're not using over human reason to overthrow the word of God. What we're doing is the same thing that Jesus is doing in this passage, which is looking more generally to the, what the, the Bible teaches about God and some other things, and to protect the widow. The, the, we say the same God who protects the widow and the orphan, 
who are made a widow or an orphan through death also protects the widow and the orphan who are made a widow or orphan through divorce. It's not like I was in a, I remember having a conversation with someone who was like, well, I know, I guess in that case you just got to starve and that's what the gospel says. And he's like, well, that doesn't really, you know, like I don't, I don't think that's quite right. That doesn't really seem consistent with the character of God. And so, it's a, in other words, this is a legal protection that's designed to protect the innocent and punish the guilty and we, can't, we shouldn't turn it into a legal weapon that's used to punish the innocent and clear the guilty. That marriage is made for humanity, humanity is not made for marriage, to paraphrase our Lord with the Sabbath. Um, okay, so, uh, you know, there's, there's other objections that we might, we might have to this, but we'll, you know, if you have those objections, we can talk, at, talk after the service. Um, but, you know, I think that's, that's, that's the, the basic idea here. And so just to walk through an example, and I think it's an example that's on display in this text, on display in Deuteronomy 24, is we have a, a husband and a wife, and they're having difficulties, and the husband separates without having biblical grounds. He gives her a certificate of divorce. He sues for divorce. And so sometimes later, he realizes like, oh, you know what? I made, I made a big mistake. You know, I, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And he goes back to seek reconciliation. And so the question is like, oh, well, could she reconcile with this man? Like, yeah, she, she could. She could, uh, you know, until one party remarries, both parties are free to reconcile. Must she reconcile with this man? No. You know, he, she's not bound to a man who has abandoned her. That's what Paul seems to suggest. And, you know, should she reconcile? Well, that's largely up to her. You know, it's like, it is, it is to our glory to overlook offenses and to forgive uh, and, 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 and to uphold our marriages, but it is also in our wisdom she could decide, you know what, like, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And, and either way, in any of those situations, you know, she should still behave as a beloved child of God, right? That we should, as, as children of God, we should be imitators of God, and we should walk in love and walk in forgiveness as Christ loved us and Christ forgave us. Um, but the point is that the innocent party in, in this arrangement, the choice is up to her. Um, she's free to remarry in the Lord if she wants to, including remarry her husband. She's free to remain single in the Lord. But because the marriage is this God-ordained union, it doesn't oppress the innocent party. And so what do we, what do, we do with it? How, how do we apply this truth? Well, for those of you who are in the wrong, we, we would say we want to imitate God's holiness. Okay, that we should repent of our sin and flee from God. So okay, we say like, well, yeah, you know, it's not a big deal. She'll forgive me. Uh, and you know, maybe that's true. But I would say don't presume upon the grace of your spouse and don't presume upon the stability of your marriage. That your sin will catch up with you one way or another. That don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You will, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, and the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reach corruption. Okay? Number two, you say, oh, well, it's not adultery. You know, it, is it? not adultery? Well, the word actually isn't adultery. It's sexual immorality. That's the word that Jesus uses. You know, like, are you looking at pornography? Uh, are, are, you, are you lusting after your coworkers? Is it leading in that direction? Are you flirting with other people? Um, you know, your, your sin is enslaving, and it only gets worse. And don't you, don't you know that if you present your members to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Um, there's this story. So we, we have a recovery ministry at Providence that I'm involved with, and I see this very sad pattern quite often, which is that guys, you know, a guy, and here's an example. So a guy came to us 
from a different church, like, oh, you have a recovery ministry. I want to like learn from you guys and copy it and whatever. And uh, maybe we can help other people at our church. It's like, oh, great. Well, tell me about your story a little bit. And it's like, turns out, well, okay, he's 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 deep, deeply caught up in the sin of pornography, and you know, he's got a wife at home and he's got a baby on the way. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, let's. How about the first step with this? Probably is that you do this thing and really understand how it works and you see recovery in your own life, and then maybe we can talk about like how to translate that to a different church. And he's like, well, you know, I'm not sure. I'm in a time like maybe in the new year. It's like, well, okay, time out. Let's just replace the word pornography in that sentence with the word adultery and see how insane that sounds, right? Oh, yeah, like I'm committing adultery, you know, but like I'm busy, you know, I got a baby coming. Maybe in the next year? Maybe next year? Um, if, 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 if it doesn't sound insane to you, it, it should. Like the, 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 the God who said, like, cut off your right hand, if your right hand causes you to lust, cut it off. Or if your right eye causes you to lust, pluck it out. Like he's not, he's not talking necessarily about like actually chopping off, you know, your members. He's saying sin is serious business and sin requires drastic action. And um, so if that's, if that's you, that you should pursue holiness with the same intensity that you pursue sin. That sin is serious business and it warrants serious action, okay? So that's, that's one category of people that's out there right now. Uh, those who are in the wrong. And the other, those who have been wronged. And I think for those who have been wronged, um, we should imitate God's grace, that we shouldn't rashly rush out of a God-ordained union. And I say this not from personal experience, but from the experience of others, that the cost of exiting a marriage is almost always higher than anyone really thinks. Uh, Economically, for sure, uh, lawyers are very expensive, but uh, also, you know, like like socially, spiritually, um, mentally. Uh, So... There's one big caveat to everything I'm about to say, which is that if, if you're in a situation where, where, where your spouse is physically abusive or the, you're seeing the precursors to that, then, then you should, uh, the first thing you should do is go consult an expert, okay? So these situations are very dangerous. I used to uh, work at the Travis County Attorney and like, like that's going nowhere good real fast. So don't go to your spouse and say like, you know, like don't go to, like if you wanna go to your pastor, great, but like go to your pastor and also perhaps go to find an expert who can, to help you navigate that situation well, okay? Because like, there's a very good chance if you try to get out of divorce, if you try to get out of a marriage with an abusive spouse and you're not um, wise about it or you stay in the marriage with the abusive spouse and you're not wise about it, that you will get killed, okay? So with that said, seek counsel in every other situation. Seek counsel, move slowly. It's to our glory to overlook the offenses that others committed to us, to forgive as we've been forgiven and to seek and to accept reconciliation. And if you do stay together, which is your choice, one way or the other, if you do stay together, trust that God is adding another beautiful pain or layer or section to that tapestry that he's been weaving. Then he'll magnify his glory through you, okay? So that's number two. And then for the rest of us, I think, and this is probably more, more all of us, that we would imitate God, his, his compassion. That we have compassion on those who are um, suffering because of their spouse's sin. That marital sin, things like abandonment, things like adultery, exact an extremely heavy toll emotionally on people. And uh, God in his mercy shows compassion on the innocent party. I think we also in our mercy should show compassion on the innocent party. Um, which just means like, you know, just be understanding, be compassionate, be merciful when you're dealing with these people. Um, so we don't, you know, in a perfect, perfect world there would be no divorce. We don't live in a perfect world. Therefore the innocent party uh, is not bound or enslaved to a marriage that has been desecrated by sin. Um, but we don't live in a perfect world, but we do have a perfect God. And that kind of brings us to that last piece of the puzzle, that because marriage is a God-ordained union, that God can faithfully uphold his own. 
You can faithfully uphold the zone. And it's strange, I think, for a lot of us to think of, think of God as uh, married, but the predominant metaphor in the Old Testament is not actually father and child uh, or king and subjects. It's husband and wife. Um, and so and this, this, this idea continues into the New Testament that Christ describes himself as the bridegroom for example. Or Paul says that marriage is a mystery that represents the union of Christ and his church, his love for us and his union with him. Uh, it's the unbreakable covenant of God and his people. And uh, the final resurrection is, a, is described, for example, as like the marriage supper of the Lamb. So with all that said, like God in that sense is married. And, and so, you know, you're thinking like, okay, so this passage, maybe this passage leaves you feeling under the pile Maybe it's like your life before you came to Christ was not characterized by marital purity and faithfulness. Or maybe your life after you came to Christ was not characterized by marital purity and faithfulness. But here's the good news of the gospel. The the good news of the gospel is it's not be pure and faithful to God so that he will love you. But rather, God is faithful and God loves you and therefore he has made you pure. Um, That Marriage, marriage is a picture of this, of this gospel that Christ is our husband and, and we are his wife. And there's bad news and there's good news to the gospel. And there's bad news and good news in this case. The bad news is, and this is what James teaches us, for example, that when we turn our backs on God and we try to find our satisfaction in the world, that we are adulteresses. It's the language of James, at least in the King James. And uh, that Hosea, the prophet Hosea, describes us, describes the, the, the people of God as a wife of whoredom who prostitutes herself to other men and just spurns her husband. And, and I think that, you know, I, I, Isaiah talks about this, like it's all over the place. That God would be well within his rights to divorce his people if that's what he, if that's what he wanted to do. But here's, here's the good news about, is that unlike us, who are imperfect and hard of heart, uh, God is perfect and without any stain of sin and therefore though God would be well within his rights to divorce his people, uh, he chooses not to. That he's sworn this unbreakable oath instead. And so when we wander from him, he guides us back to him. He guides us back home. And when we uh, chase after other lovers, he throws up obstacles to keep us from getting to them. And when we commit adultery with the world, he forgives us and he covers our sin. And so no matter how great our faithlessness towards God, Christ's faithfulness is greater. No matter how great our sin, God's grace is greater. No matter how great our, our love for the world, God's love for his people is greater. And so the, the gospel says that Christ loves his bride like this. For example, while we were enemies of the cross and we were spurning God and chasing after other lovers, Christ laid down his life for our sake, quote, that he might sanctify us and having cleansed us by the washing of the water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27. Or he says he died, quote, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, Titus 2. Or he says, you know, that through Christ God saves us not because of the works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out onto us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so so the good news of this passage 
in short, is that no matter how far we have fallen short of that perfect standard that God has given us, the standard what God has joined together, let not man separate, that our perfect God offers to cleanse us and to restore us through faith. That, that anyone who trusts in Christ has their sin nailed to the cross. That anyone who trusts in Christ is free from condemnation. That anyone who trusts in Christ is dead to sin and alive to God. And anyone who trusts in Christ is a new creation. Right? Not, not just with a new uh, legal record, but also a new heart and a new spirit. And so knowing that Christ has saved us by grace through faith apart from works, uh, we can walk in that newness of life. And that's true whether we're on our fifth marriage or our first marriage or we've never been married and desperately hope to be or never been married and have no desire to be married. Um, in any, regardless of the situation, Christ, our great Savior and Lord, is also our, a faithful and loving and gracious husband. And so we, we, because he is our our loving and gracious and faithful husband, he, he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, and he will never cast us out. And so that knowing that marriage is a God-ordained union and we can trust in the God who through Christ faithfully upholds his own marriage. Um, let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for um, the, the good gift of marriage. Thank you for uh, your care and your protection of the innocent. And thank you, Lord, that in Christ you have made us pure. Um, strengthen and comfort us by your spirit to accept and to live out these truths. Uh, open the eyes of our hearts, both uh, to the ugliness of sin and also to the, the beauty of the glory of Christ and your grace towards us in him. Um, hope that you would help us to see clearly and trust in his provision for us and to help us to experience the reality uh, that in him we are pure. Um, and we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Uh, so so it, if you're new here, uh, we typically take some time after the service to, I mean, after the sermon to kind of re- personally to re- reflect on what's been said. Um, you know, w- words of let, let the Spirit convict us, let the Spirit speak to us and encourage us to offer uh, words of consolation or admonishment to one another um, and, and, and basically just take some time to sit and dwell with these truths, to meditate on them, kind of knead them like dough um, and, and see what connections, connections form. So. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.